today, and it's uh, 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 an honor to bring the Word to you. I uh, will tell you, I'm a bit nervous today, but the Lord will help me get through it, and I appreciate the prayers. I needed them for today. So turn back uh, to the verse that was read earlier. Turn to John 14, if you would, and we'll read this again together. And then we'll go right to Ephesians 6 from there. John 14, verse 21. John 14, verse 21. These are two New Testament verses, and we will uh, come all the way around and see how these apply with family home worship. The verse reads, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. In this verse... The person who loves Jesus can be identified by two characteristics. The two characteristics are that they have something. And they not only have something, but they keep that something. Well, that something is this. It's the commands of Christ. They have the commands of Christ. And the one who loves Christ has those commands. Meaning this, that he knows them, and he understands the commands of Christ. But he not only does that, but he keeps them, meaning this, that he obeys those commands. He obeys those commands. So he has them, he knows them, and he keeps them, he obeys them. Now turn to Ephesians 6, verse 4. Ephesians 6, verse 4. reads, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now this verse is simple and it's very direct. Basically it says this, Fathers, don't rule over your household in such a way that promotes anger and hopelessness. Instead, teach them the word of God and teach them godly discipline giving them the knowledge of godliness and hope. Now, I chose these two verses because what I want you to see in the New Testament is the absolute necessity of family home worship because both of these verses cannot be accomplished without family home worship. So keep those verses in mind as we go through the sermon today. My sermon will be topical in nature regarding family home worship in which I will present a biblical case for family home worship and I will also touch on how the Reformation affected the family home worship. And we're doing that out of honor of the Reformation because last month was Reformation Month and last Sunday was Reformation Sunday. And while we're on that, one of the most important accomplishments that came out of the Reformation was that the Bible was was made available to people in their common tongue. So when the Bible came, light came into the homes as families now had the Word of God. And they were able to study the Word of God together. So biblical family worship, biblical family home worship flourished after the Reformation, when the light came into the home. 
And out of that, the biggest revival ever, the Reformation, happened. So as family worship arose, so did the church. And the Protestant Christian church, as we know it today, came up out of that time period. So as family worship thrived, so did the church. And as the church began to thrive, so did family worship, all under the influence of the Holy Spirit, but under the guidance of the Word of God, which was now made available to the people. Now here today, what I want you to keep in mind is what do I mean by family home worship? So let me give you how I define family home worship. It is the act of Bible reading, Bible teaching, and Bible discussion along with prayer and along with singing in the home and in such a manner that glorifies Christ and edifies the family while worshiping together in the home. The goal of this is this. The evangelizing, the discipleship, and the maturing of those in the household to love the Lord Jesus Christ, to increase in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and develop an inward desire to obey His commands. Hence we have, back at our verse we read in John 14, to have those commands and to obey those commands. It begins in the home with family worship. So that is what I mean when I say family home worship today. Now these activities that go on in the home under this family home worship should sound very familiar to you because there's another area, another place that we gather together to do that and obviously that is the church. In fact, they're almost identical in what goes on in both places. The Puritans referred to the worshiping Christian home as little churches. And Richard Baxter said this uh, regarding a, a family who practices home family worship. He says, that Christian family is a church. He said, it's a society of Christians combined for the better worshiping and serving God. So for the Reformers and the Puritans, family worship in the home was an absolute necessity. And as they encouraged it, they developed a common phrase that many of them used to defend their stance on promoting family worship. And the phrase is this, as family worship in the home goes, so goes the church. And as the church goes, so goes society. So the reformers work to translate and distribute the Bible in the common tongue had a direct impact on family home worship. Because you do have to remember, up and all the way through the 16th century, there was only one approved Bible. It was called the Vulgate, which was in Latin, which very few people could speak and almost nobody could read. This Latin or the Vulgate Bible was translated from Hebrew and Greek into Latin around the year 400 by a man named Jerome. And he did this at the request of one of the first popes. So they translated this Bible into Latin. And over the years, the Catholic Church realized the power that they had in controlling God's Word. So they ensured that they would retain that power for themselves. And in doing so, they did a couple things. The first thing they did is they allowed only the Vulgate to be the approved Bible of the church. 
And at the same time, they forbid on the pain of torture and even death the reading of Scripture in any language other than Latin. Now, so what this did, you had a people who couldn't read Latin, couldn't understand Latin, and all <clears throat> they have no Bible to read. And when they go to church, the Scripture is being read in the Latin, so they didn't have a clue of what was being said. They had no Scripture. They had no Bible. And they had no light. The result was a spiritually compromised, ignorant people, completely void of the Word of God, and thus family and households were in darkness. And thus the name of this time period, the Dark Ages, also known as the Middle Ages, so these dark ages is a time period when the Catholic Church, ruled by the popes, rose to power throughout Europe. And it is marked by this spiritually deficient, ignorant people in a most ungodly society. Now it's interesting that it's known as the dark ages because we know the Bible as being light. But it is the dark ages because of that. Now most of it have been taught in school that it's called the dark ages because of intellectual darkness. But that's not the case. It's called that because the light or the Word of God had been removed from society by the Catholic Church. The biggest impact on this spiritual darkness was in the home. It's very hard to have family home worship without a Bible, without Scripture. And as each generation passed, they become further and further and further removed from the Word of God, from the light of truth. The people had been without the light for almost a thousand years. And these popes and these magistrates of the Catholic Church, they would not stand for the Bible being read in the home because they knew that if that happened, eventually they would be called out for their heretical teaching and preaching and their practices and that is exactly what happened in the 16th century with the Reformation. Martin Luther nails up 95 questions on the door of his church in Wittenberg, Germany, called Luther's Mark, uh, 95 Theses. But these were questions, questions regarding the doctrines taught by the Catholic Church. They were questions regarding the practices of the Catholic Church. And he wanted some answers. He wanted to be able to discuss these which they would not do. So he nails those to the door, and from that moment on, the battle was on. The Holy Spirit began to work and called out men who made it their mission to translate the Bible back out of Latin and into the common tongue, even though it would most likely cause them their death. And the death back then was by burning at the stake. Many were martyred, but God prevailed. And with the invention of the printing press, thanks be to God, Bibles were mass printed in the common tongues of the people and distributed into the homes of the people. So after darkness, light comes to the people. A few years ago, y'all will remember, we did a lengthy study on the Reformation and we learned some of the Latin phrases that came out of that time period. And one of those is the chief motto of the Reformation. And it went like this. Post tenebrous lux. Post tenebrous lux. Post meaning after. Tenebrous meaning darkness. And lux meaning light. 
the main motto of the Reformation was post-tenebrous lux, meaning after darkness, light. And it's all based on Scripture being made back available to the people and into the hands of the people in a language that they could read and understand. They've been without the Bible for over a thousand years, in darkness for a thousand years. I remind you of Psalms 119.105, says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. Second Peter 1.19 says this, We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And that's what happened. Scripture came back to the people and that lamp shone in a dark, dark society. So what does all this have to do with worship in the home? Well, we remember my saying that the, adopt, the, the reformers had adopted. They said, as family worship goes in the home, so goes the church and so goes society. Amen. The reformers believed that vibrant, recurring family worship was vital for the church and for society. And why did they believe this? Because not only did they see it in the Scripture, but they also knew that the home was the best place to teach the Scriptures, to teach the commandments. It's the best place to perform discipleship. Disciples must begin their work. Disciplers must begin their work in the home first. And it's the way that God commanded us to fill the earth. Now, before we move on from the Reformers, and since last month was Reformation, we need to remember this about them and ought to honor them for their work. The Reformers wanted the Bible in the hands of the people. And they wanted it specifically in the hands of the heads of households. And many died by being burned at the stake for their work. They desired the Scriptures to be read by the people in their own language, and they wanted the family to do this. They wanted them to be able to worship in their homes as according to the Scriptures. They knew the effect of Scripture being read in the home, and they knew the effect, along with the reading of Scripture, the power that it would have when it's coupled with prayer and singing by the family. And they knew that it was absolutely necessary for the preservation of the next generation and the sanctification of the next generation. So both the Reformers and the Puritans promoted and insisted on family worship. In some cases, there were stringent, stringent rules about doing this and enforcing this, so much so that um, some churches had a rule that they would exercise church discipline against a head of household for his failure to see to his family's spiritual need in the way of family home worship. And here in our country, in early America, New England, as the church was being established here, it was common to have signed covenants between the church and the members of their church. And one of those duties in the signed covenant was the duty to carry out spiritual teaching in the home by the head of the household. And here is a part of that covenant in the way it read that these members would sign, quote, the daily, they would 
ensure and instruct the household in, quote, the daily leading of worship in the home so that the word of God would dwell in the people of the house richly so that the entire household would keep the way of the Lord. They believed in family home worship right here in our early church, so much so that they made the congregate sign an agreement that they would carry out that duty. Now, we've been talking about family home worship here in our church for a long time, and over the last month, we've really ramped up that talk, and we've made it our church-wide emphasis for next year. But as it turns out, we're not the only church who's doing this. We're not alone in this effort. And some of today's church leaders say that there's actually a rise in family home worship. Some of them are saying perhaps it was the pandemic lockdown that's bringing this about. But what one leader said about this, I've read about, really caught my attention. He said this. He says, the new interest in family worship was first labeled as a, quote, rise in family worship. But it has since been rephrased and corrected to say it is a recovery of family worship. Well, it's rightly called a recovery because family worship in the home has been a part of the people of God since the beginning of the time as commanded by God. It's not a new thing. It's not a new command. It's not a new practice. It has always been and has always been a part of a godly household. It is expected as part of a Christian duty, and it is modeled throughout biblical history. But somehow it became a low priority in the church and in Christian society. Maybe we just assumed that the church would handle it all, and we kind of took the attitude on like we have about the education of our children. Let the state educate our children. Maybe we took on the same thinking. Let the church educate our household in Christian ways and the Christian commandments. Well, both have had, both of those attitudes have had similar effects and similar results. But there is much biblical support for family home worship, and there's much more than I can cover in one, one morning, but I want to bring three points about the biblical, showing you the biblical basis for family home worship, and they are this. One, it is modeled throughout biblical history. Two, the Christian family home provides the best environment for discipleship. And three, it really is indeed a biblical command and expectation on the part of a Christian. So let's talk about each of those. First off, family worship in the home is modeled throughout biblical history. Well, first off, let's go back to the beginning. Before Moses and before the tabernacle, the home is obviously where worship had to take place. There was no other place. It was only the home. So that's a given. But what about during the tabernacle, tabernacle and temple era? Well, in those cases, there was certainly special worship, and especially the sacrifices. They went on in the tabernacle and in the temple. That is where you went to do those things and other special commanded services. However, fathers were still expected to lead family worship in the home to all members of their household. Deuteronomy is loaded with commands on teaching your household the commandments of God. And that falls not just on the priest to the people, but on the fathers of the households. Deuteronomy 6, it says we are commanded, and really the verse could be 
brought down to just this one word, to immerse ourselves. To immerse ourselves in the law and in the commandments. And after we immerse ourselves, we are to teach them to our children. Not just one day per week, but every day per week and all day long. And in chapter 11 of Deuteronomy, Moses pleads with the people to know and obey the words of God. And he commands the people to prioritize that learning and teaching of the household, God's Word and obedience. Now, on the part of Moses, you've, you've read it, you're familiar with it. It's not just a suggestion. Or it's not, hey, it would be a good idea if you would do this. It's to be taken as a command from God. And I will tell you something in your own Bible interpretation. It's a fairly safe practice to assume that if a line begins with these words, you shall that it should be taken as an imperative sentence, meaning it is a direct order, and in most cases it should be considered a direct order from God Himself. And here is what I'm talking about. Deuteronomy 11:18. It says, You shall, you shall, therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall, you shall again, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Now here's the meaning of this. You shall do whatever it takes to sow my laws and my commandments into your mind, into your understanding, into your conscience, into your soul, into your heart, so they they actually become a part of you. The extreme example of binding them on your hands and as frontlets in front of your eyes is an expression of the seriousness of knowing and understanding God's Word. You do whatever it takes. Whatever it takes to know God's commands, even if you have to tie them in front of your face all day long. So the first act of obedience is to learn what you are to obey. How can you obey something if you don't learn what it is you are to obey? And what we are to obey is the Word of God. But you learn it so much that it becomes fixed in your mind and in your heart and in your soul. It becomes a part of you. And you might say it defines you. But the you shall command, it doesn't stop with just that verse. The very next verse reads like this. Deuteronomy eleven nineteen through 20. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house and when you are walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise... You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Let me paraphrase that verse for you. You shall teach the Bible to your household all the time and in every opportunity, 24-7. And the scriptures should be the main thing in your household so that your family knows there is nothing more important than knowing and obeying God's words. My brothers and sisters, this is the core of family home worship. To know the commands so well yourselves that you can teach them to your household. You must know them so that you can teach them and you must teach them. And for the Israelite, the home, just like we said our home is many church, the Israelite home was a mini synagogue where the family would worship God with Bible study, prayer, and the singing of the Psalms. The Israelites, they were expected to go to the synagogue for Sabbath. Sabbath worship, but the primary worship still took place in the home with the father leading it. And if no 
male leadership was there, then the mother or the grandmother took over and conducted that. And those primary activities consisted of the study of God's Word, prayer, and singing. Now, back to here, I just touched on if the father was absent. That was not uncommon in those times. We read about the nation of Israel. They were constantly at war. They weren't at home all the time. The men were gone at war with other countries. And it wasn't just an overnight trip. Most of the time it took, it was months at a time. Well, in those cases, the mother or the grandmother would most likely take care of that. Nevertheless, that family home worship went on and it continued. Examples of home worship in the Old Testament are plentiful. And by the way, as we just saw, this includes all homes, no matter how many people live in it. Families, empty nesters, and single people all expected to conduct home worship. I mean, think about it. Most of the prophets that we read about, they were single. The apostles, most of them, were single. But what do we read about them doing? Home worship. They still worship. From what we know of Daniel, he was a single man. But he still practiced home worship, most likely by himself. In fact, he was so dedicated to his home worship that he was thrown into a lion's den for his refusal to obey a command not to do home worship. You may not do that. He, on pains of being thrown in the lion's den, he chose the lion's den and continued to do his family home worship by himself. What about the New Testament with the establishment of the church at Pentecost? Some want to think that after Pentecost and the, uh, the establishment of the New Testament church that all worship and learning is to take place in the church. And yes, we're to gather together and worship together corporately as a body, body united together in Christ. But nowhere does Scripture say or imply that we are to stop family worship. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul is speaking to Timothy about Timothy's, quote, genuine faith. He commends Timothy for your genuine faith. But he says this about it. Your genuine faith that, quote, that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and mother Eunice. No doubt here with Timothy, family worship had taken place under the leadership of his grandmother and his mother because their genuine faith was fostered and developed in Timothy so that he now had that genuine faith. And Paul is commending him for that. So when it comes to worship in the home and corporate worship in the church building, both go hand in hand together and they both support each other. And we find in the New Testament that home worship is very much alive and expected on the part of Christians. Paul speaks on the Christian conduct of husbands and wives, children and servants, and how they are to honor the Lord when they conduct themselves in obedience to the Scriptures. Well, how else can they conduct themselves in obedience to the Scriptures unless they know the Scriptures? We also must remember that most of the time the early church was under persecution, so they weren't able to gather. So obviously they had to worship in the home. 
And then we think about the guidelines that Paul gives Timothy for spiritual leaders, the spiritual leaders of the church, how you are to look for those men who would fill that role. And we're familiar with those, that the man must be above reproach, husband of one wife, sober, self-controlled, and so on. But he goes on and spends a little more time in detail on this one marker to look for in a man, a well-run household. Now, does the man run the household well? 1 Timothy 3, 4. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And in chapter, verse 5, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household well, how will he care for God's church? Now, most people read this and they think that this means submissive, respectful children, an obedient wife, and a clean and orderly home, and that's it. The yard's mowed, the house is painted, the kids, the wife, they're all towing the line of obedience. They have respect and all is good and orderly in that home. But is that really the extent of what Paul means here? Let's look at the context of the paragraph. The context of the paragraph is qualifications for bishops and elders. And these bishops and elders are concerned for what priority thing in the church? Spiritual. Spiritual things. The spiritual well-being of the church. These are the overseers who are accomplished in spiritual teaching, spiritual admonishment, and spiritual discernment. Paul is telling Timothy how to identify men who are accomplished in these areas. And he identifies the man's home as the place to look to see if he is a spiritual leader. He is not talking about this type of man. A man who has a well-run submissive household due to a heavy hand of masculinity, strict obedience... Nor is he talking about a man who lords it over his family and has them all beat down under his rule. Nor is he talking about a man who demands physical obedience and submission from an outward appearance. He is talking about a man who exercises his God-given role and duty of being the spiritual leader in his home in such a way that produces an inward change in the people of his household. He tells him to look for these things and look for this specifically in a man who does this. A man who first submits to his head, Jesus Christ. And in that submissive obedience to Jesus Christ and out of a love of his Savior, he loves and serves his own family by watching over and nurturing the family's spiritual well-being. And what is the chief means of watching over and developing the spiritual health of family members? Obviously, it's family, home, worship. The reading of God's Word, the discussion of God's Word, praying to God, singing to God, praising God. That's how you do that. It's in the home. And this same man, who is a loving and God-fearing man, takes the duty of his spiritual headship so serious, so serious that he leads his family in Bible reading, Bible discussion, Bible teaching on a daily basis, and he allows nothing, nothing to take precedent over it. 
And it is this same humble father leading his family in prayer that does not leave out the confession of sin, that does not leave out the discussion of repentance, even to the point of weeping and begging God for His mercy for Himself and for His family, with His family. It is this same submissive, humble Father who leads in singing, even when He can't carry a tune. And it is the same loving, patient, humble, God-fearing spiritual leader that so loves His family that He does all, and I mean all, that he can to share the gospel over and over and over again with his family because he understands eternity. And he wants more than anything for his family to be in eternity with the Savior Jesus Christ rather than with the enemy. And after his family's repentance and after their confession, he wants more than anything else for them to work out their salvation in such a manner that they are conformed into the image of Christ right before His very own eyes to the glory of Christ. But still yet, there is one more thing that drives this man to do this, to be this spiritual leader. More than that, even above the love for his family, he's driven to do this because he wants to please his Savior. His Savior who expects Him to do this. Expects Him to manage the development, the spiritual development of His own household. And He does this by first and foremost, family, home, worship. Paul says to Timothy, get that man. Because most likely he will lead the church in the same manner with the same zeal for its spiritual well-being, where the emphasis is on the inside of the person, not the outside. Now, there are those who say that uh, these passages regarding leaders say nothing about specifically family home worship. And they're looking for these specific words that just actually command that. But I want to remind you again the context of this paragraph. We're talking about bishops and elders whose main concern is spiritual development. That is the context of this passage. Not physical well-being, but spiritual well-being. And if the household has been taught spiritually, more than likely that household is going to manifest these qualities from the inside. That they're well-managed, they're dignified, and they're submissive out of their own desire from their own heart and not in pretense for their love of God. And how else can that be managed and promoted in a household except through family home worship? So clearly, family home worship was active and ongoing during the New Testament era, and it is modeled in both the Old and New Testament. All right? Our point two, the Christian home and family. Is it the best environment to promote discipleship? This should be obvious. This doesn't take much to really talk about. Because it is in the home uh, that a person can worship in a very intimate and personal way. No matter how many people are in your household, you are more at ease to do things in the home that you just can't do in a public setting or a corporate setting. 
not to mention some things that we do in home really aren't appropriate or proper in the church setting. So there are things about worship that are reserved for the home. For instance, none of us would dare stand up in the middle of a sermon and say, hey, wait a minute, I didn't understand that. Repeat that or explain that better. Which of you are going to stand up while our pastor is preaching and interrupt his sermon and say that? None of us. That's not the case in the home. The home is where you can ask questions. The home is where you can gain clarity. Singing is another area. There are many of us who don't really like to sing aloud in a public setting. But in the home, you can cut loose. You can cut loose. Many of us are hesitant to pray out loud. We're not comfortable with it. But in the home with your family, you're more free to pray out loud and express things from your heart. Praises to God. So the home provides the best place for all to participate. But out of this participation in the home, you learn to participate and you gain comfort with it so that you can do it in the church. The home is the training ground for church worship. We learn in the home how to worship in a corporate setting. Now, the other area of home worship that's very difficult to replicate anywhere else is that lively discussion of Scripture. Now, this should be the highlight of home worship. Deep discussion of the Christian doctrines. And it should be conducted and promoted in such a way that the people are eager for it. They look forward to it. Martin Luther was famous for his dinner time talks. They're called, quote, the table talks. His nightly routine around the dinner table included the discussion of Scripture, and it would go on into the night until his wife, Katie, would say, this has got to stop. The good doctor needs his rest. And she would run the people out of the household. But nevertheless, this went on for years, nightly. Luther's table would consist of his family, his wife and six children. And most of the time, he would invite several university students with him and a couple of members of the clergy. And during this time, around dinner, they would read Scripture, they would sing, they would pray, and then they would get into a deep discussion of of Scripture. It was noted this of Luther's home, quote, the relaxed atmosphere of the hospitable home was conducive to spirited conversation. We should be the same in our home. We should promote spirited conversation about the Scriptures. After all, we can have pretty spirited conversation about baseball and the World Series and football and who won the game. We should have the same spirited conversation about Scripture. Both Martin and Katie Luther were well known for their hospitality for all types of people, including the sick and the poor. They not only fed them and tended to them and their physical needs, but they tended to their spiritual needs by inviting them into their home for these table talk sessions. Now, speaking of the biblical home and the design of the home, Katie Luther. It is said this about Katie Luther. Quote, It has been stated that behind every great man is an equally great woman who supported him in his work. That statement could not be more true of the woman who is known as the morning star of Wittenberg, Katie Luther. Martin Luther would not have been able to accomplish half of his work apart from the aid and work of Katie. She was consistently bringing organization to his disorganization. He was known to be very disorganized. And she worked long hours to manage their home. 
which included the management of their farm animals, cows, goats, chickens, all their finances, their six children, and the nightly dinner, which was always the six children and several added mouths to feed. And then the worship would begin. Katie was very involved in the daily discipleship of their own children. She made it her priority. As Luther was in and out of the home because he was a busy professor, she continued to invest in their children. And she is noted as being no lightweight when it came to theology. It's not just the men who teach their children. The, famous, the setting for the famous table talk was the table in Luther's home. And many deep and theologically rich conversations took place around that table. And Katie was often engaged in those theology discussions. And get this, in Latin. She could speak Latin. But here's the, the key to this in the family home worship. Their marriage put on display the gospel of Jesus Christ as the light of the gospel was preached, taught, and practiced in the home. Family, home, worship. Look, you can learn to pray, and you can sing in many, many settings, but the best and most personal setting is the home. And guess what? It's a bonus. You can do it seven days a week, whereas the church is one day, two days at best. So we move to our third point, which we're going to find out that home worship is really a command of Scripture. It is commanded and expected. And again, I've said earlier that uh, there are those who suggest that there really is no Scripture that just comes out and says, quote, thou shall practice family worship in the home, which I would say, okay, yeah, you're correct. However, does something that's so obvious need to be stated Does something that's so obvious and necessary have to be spelled out? Does God have to spell out every little thing to us for us to obey? Or are we looking for reasons to not obey because we don't want to do something? When Christ goes and He says, go and make disciples, does He spell out the whole process of how that is to be done? But when you read Scripture, I think you will find that family home worship does fall under a command and order from God to do. We're all familiar with those many verses in Psalms and Proverbs about that, and we're familiar with fathers in the Jewish homes who how they led their families. But I want to show you a New Testament passage that really does, in fact, command worship in the home. Now, remember how I defined family home worship earlier. Bible study, praying, singing, with the goal of evangelizing and sanctifying those in your household. Now here's this New Testament command. As Christ was ascending to heaven, He departs with these words to His disciples, by the way, whom He had been practicing family home worship with for the previous three years of His life. He departs with these words, Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Christ tells His disciples here to go and make more disciples. That is, disciples of Christ. And what is that process that Christ used to make the apostles, His followers, 
What did he do? How did he do that? Was it not through this process of family home worship that I've been describing? Did he not teach and teach and teach his disciples all the time, 24-7? He did. Did he not sing hymns with them? I know you said, wait a minute. When did he sing hymns? Well, at the conclusion of the Lord's Supper, it says they sang a hymn. Matthew 26, 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. They had the Lord's Supper, and then they sang a hymn, and then they left. Christ, what about prayer? Did he teach them the prayer? He did. We just prayed his prayer earlier today, all of us. He taught them how to pray and what to pray. It's recorded in Matthew 6 and 11. And he begins by teaching his disciples how to pray. But he begins like this, how not to do it. Don't do this. Don't pray like that. But I want you to pray like this. And not only does he say like this, but I want you to pray like this and say this. He gives them the words to pray. That is specific teaching on the part of Christ. And in this teaching, he gives us the Lord's Prayer. So let's go back to the command to go and make disciples. Jesus is saying this. Go make more disciples just as I have made you. That's the process. And then he tells them in the very next verse the method. The method in the what? The method of teaching is this. Matthew 28, 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the world. But what are they to do? How are they to accomplish this? They're to teach them to observe. Obey. You've got to teach them what to obey, though. So you teach them the laws and commands of Christ, and then you teach them that you must obey them. So to make a disciple, you must teach. And then after you teach them, you must teach them to obey those commands. And that is what Jesus has told them to do. And this method is called discipleship. We all know that. We're familiar with that word, discipleship. It takes place in the church. It takes place amongst friends. It takes place in fellowships. But the best place for discipleship to take place in is in your home. And it's called family home worship. The home, our family, our wife, our children, all others under our roof. They are our first mission field. Our household is our first priority when it comes to discipleship and mission work does it make sense that the Lord would send us out to the nations and neglect our own family beginning with creation and still today what is it that God expects one of the main purposes of the first institution he created the very first institution before the church is the marriage and why did he create that So that out of that marriage institution, one man, one woman, that we would create godly offspring. And he still expects that today. Godly offspring. You don't make godly offspring without family home worship. So God expects, meaning he commands, godly offspring who will love and obey him and worship him. That's why we're here. That's why he created us. That's the what for we are. We were created for and we were fitted to be able to worship God and enjoy Him forever. So it's really very simple and obvious. Discipleship begins first in the home and it involves teaching and the reading of God's Word. It involves praying. It involves singing the hymns, the psalms. 
praising God and doing that. And we are commanded to go and make disciples, but that first means your home. Do not neglect your home thinking you are doing mission work to the world. How else can a family grow in Christ so that each successive generation will continue to grow in Christ unless they practice family home worship? So I hope you see that family home worship in the home should be a priority for you because of these three points. One, it's modeled in Scripture. Two, the Christian home is the best place to practice discipleship. And three, it is indeed commanded. Now let me close with this. There's a very well-known verse, a scripture verse, that hangs on the wall, probably in most of our homes, many of our homes. We, we, we love it. And we love this verse because we like to think of it as our family motto. And probably some of us are guilty of uh, being a little bit smug about this verse and prideful about it. The problem is with this verse, and for most of us, is we don't understand the depth of this verse. We don't understand what it means for us. We don't understand what is required of us. The verse is a culmination of a speech. And it's the last line of this verse that we so love. And it reads like this. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's the words of Joshua protege, the devoted protege of Moses and the one chosen by God to lead Israel after Moses. The phrase is the last line of Joshua 24, 15. The entire verse reads like this, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, we like this verse, and we like to think we do this. We like to think this is our home. This is how we are. However, I can assure you what Jesus had in mind for this word serve is not quite what we have in mind. And here's what I mean. Joshua here declares that both he himself, he himself and his household, meaning everyone under his roof, will, the word is will, serve the Lord. He uses the word will in such a way as it is declaring certainty. It is not that they might serve, or maybe they will serve, or I hope they will serve, or I will try to get them to serve. It is certain that they will succeed in serving the Lord, which means this on his part, I will see to it. They will serve the Lord because I'm going to see that they do. He takes the responsibility on himself. Now, you all know this, the context of this verse. He's given his farewell speech to Israel. He's approaching 110 years old. He's about to die. And he has spent his entire life completely devoted to the Lord and the Lord's work. And he succeeded in that. But to succeed, he would have done these things. He would have searched and studied the laws and the commands as passed down from Moses. He would have obeyed those laws and commands. He would have prayed continually to God. And he would have obeyed God as he was led in those prayers. And not only that, he would sing. And why do I say that? Because 
Songs were sung during the leadership of his mentor, Moses. We read about those songs. And they glorified God in that singing. It would be far-fetched to think that Joshua did not also sing praises to his God. God loved, Joshua loved God with all of himself, with all his heart, all his mind, and all his soul, strength, faith. And his trust and obedience to God is a hallmark of his life. And with this statement of serve the Lord, Joshua is going to continue doing what he's always done. He's going to seek to know God. He's going to seek to know his commands. And he's going to work to obey them so that he will glorify God with his life. And here's the lesson for us from his quote. The lesson is this. In addition to himself, Joshua will take on the responsibility of seeing that his household will also serve the Lord. And there's only one way to achieve that in a household. Family, home, worship. Joshua, no doubt, practiced family, home, worship because he evangelized and he discipled his household to be followers of God according to the Word of God. So before you say, as for me and my household, understand what it requires of you for both yourself and your household. And understand that to serve God, one will have to practice family, home, worship. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the examples in the Bible that we had to go to regarding family, home, worship. We thank you for your words of encouragement in Scripture to perform and do our duty to conduct family, home, worship. And we thank you for your command. You have commanded us to perform family home worship. But also, Lord, you have told us how. Telling others about Christ. But, Lord, we know now that our first priority is in our own home. To evangelize and to disciple those in our own home in Christ, in the commands of Christ, in obedience to Christ, love of Christ. So, Lord, help us to do that. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessing of the church. We can gather together and learn how to bring you honor and glory in our life. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.